0: Genesis 38. So we started our sermon series in Genesis for the fall last week. Now we're picking up in Genesis 38 and we're going to walk our way all the way through Genesis. We'll actually finish up in January. Genesis 38, we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. We're going to basically be covering one or two chapters every week, which is a breakneck pace for me. We're going to read about the first half of the chapter together, and then we'll read the second half of it during the course of the sermon. So we'll read the whole thing. Right now, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shalah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring, or seed, for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the seed on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shalom, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to hear the message of this text and respond to it by learning, loving, and living Jesus. In his name, amen. Please be seated. Any Monty Python fans? Anyone? Am I the only oh I like that. Any other Monty Python fans this morning? Can I get can I get a can I get a witness? No? Well if you're a Monty Python fan, you might recognize the cultural illusion in the sermon title. And now for something completely different. If you are familiar with Monty Python, they're a British comedy group. They had a show on BBC called Monty Python's Flying Circus. And it was usually a series of kind of short comedy sketches strung together in what it appeared to be sometimes a random way, but usually tied together in some sort of unifying theme. And some of them were pretty funny. Most of them were pretty clever. Some of them were pretty offensive. And all of them were kind of stupid. And all together, it made a pretty good show. Most of the time. And if you're familiar with Monty Python's Flying Circus, you would hear that, you would be familiar with John Cleese's voice interrupting it often in the middle of it as you're right in the middle of a, of a sketch that appears to be going nowhere in particular. And he'll say, And now for something completely different. And then they launch into something else that's disconnected. Right? That's how Genesis 38 feels to me when I hit it as I'm reading Genesis, is it's right in the middle of the Joseph narrative. Right? Last week we met Jacob's put the fun and dysfunctional covenant family, and we watched his sons kidnap and sell into slavery their brother Joseph, so that Joseph's dreams of ruling and reigning, we're going to get rid of that. That's not going to happen. We're going to sell him into slavery in Egypt. And then we noticed also that it looked like the entire time that whole thing was unfolding, there was a hidden hand off screen and off camera that was guiding all of the events to work out in a certain way. And now we ended last week with Joseph down in Egypt in Potiphar's house, and now this week we get something completely different. We get a story about Judah that completely interrupts our story with something that appears to be irrelevant and is frankly somewhat offensive at a couple of points and generally just seems to be an exercise in stupidity, right? So it would fit very well in Monty Python's Flying Circus, thus the name of the sermon. And now for something completely different. So we have to wonder when we hit something like that, like, was Moses just a bad editor? Like, he needed someone else helping him as he wrote this. And probably what happened, right, is it was going to press time. The papyrus was about to have to go to be printed. He had one night left. And the Lord had said, well, you have one chapter left, Moses. This goes in my, this is with the word of God too, and my people need this. And Moses is like, I don't know where to put this. I don't have time. My editor has got, I've got a deadline. So he's just like, I'll just throw it here. And then we'll just move on. Or... Or, maybe there's something else going on with this story just at this point in the Bible. One thing that Genesis does for us that makes it such an important book in the Bible is it teaches us how to read. It teaches us how to read. Not only does it give us the foundation of biblical theology of Scripture, it gives us the starting point of the biblical story and actually gives us the ending point too, if you're reading carefully. Not only does it do that, which makes it a critical book, I had a professor who once said that if you don't get Genesis, you're not going to get anything else in the Bible. He especially said Genesis 1 through 11. That's the text that is the Bible and everything else is just commentary in some way on Genesis 1 through 11, right? It was, it was hyperbole to make a point. That's why we keep coming back to Genesis. If we're going to understand this book, we've got to get Genesis or we won't get the rest of it. Not only is Genesis, though, foundational for biblical theology, it also serves us to teach, it teaches us to read the Bible well. So if we're watching how Genesis does its storytelling and makes its message, we're going to learn to read. So we want to ask things when we see something like this going on, has Genesis already taught us how to read this? And do later biblical texts pick up on this particular reading strategy and and build on that. So if we look around a little bit, we can see what Genesis is teaching us in Genesis 38 by putting it in this spot. Does that make sense? I think it's teaching us to read. And we've actually seen this very thing used a number of times earlier in Genesis. If we think back to four and two years ago when we worked our way through the text. Genesis has already taught us how to read this this way. It sticks poems in the middle, usually toward the end, of stories, right? A poem in the middle of a narrative. And poems and narratives work differently. Narratives are a little harder to get the message, I think, sometimes, but they're my favorite genre because the message of narrative in the Bible, the theology, the here's what this is saying about God and you and what you're to do, that's in the story, it's not like a Pauline narrative where he's just kind of going through a very highly structured text, point A, point B, point C. The theology and message of narrative is in the story that it tells. So if you want to get the message, you have to live and get involved in the story. But sometimes it's hard to get. What's, what does this story actually mean? Because like this story is particularly odd. What's going on? So then Genesis sticks a poem into the middle of the story, and when it does that, the point of the poem is to tell you the message of the story. In case you didn't get it the first time, the poem will tell it to you the second time. So Genesis has already shown us this kind of writing, but instead of sticking in stories, it's stuck in poems. Now it's sticking a story in. And we actually see it used later in the Bible, too. You remember Mark. If you were here in 2017, we worked our way through the Gospel of Mark. And so you might remember the answer to this question. What is Mark's favorite fast food restaurant? Anybody? What is Mark's favorite fast food restaurant? No. It's Jimmy John's, obviously. Why? Well, because Jimmy John's does freaky fast delivery. And Mark's favorite word is straight away, straight away, straight away, straight 40 times in the book. It's the theme of the quick, 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 go, go, go. So Mark loves Jimmy John's because they deliver sandwiches like he delivers the gospel. But the other reason he likes Jimmy John's is because Jimmy John's makes sandwiches and so does Mark. And one of the main literary techniques in Mark, we learned, is the Markan sandwich. Mark starts a story, that's one piece of bread, then he sticks a second story and interrupts it, that's the meat, and then he finishes the first story, that's the bread. So bread, meat, bread. Mark does this all the time in his gospel. Starts a story, second story, finishes the first story, and when he does that, the middle story tells you the point of the outer story. Does that make sense? So you look at the meat to figure out the bread this looks exactly like a Mark and sandwich. And in fact, Mark may have gotten the idea from Genesis because that's what Genesis is doing. Genesis has started a Joseph narrative. It's sticking another story in the middle and then it's finishing the Joseph narrative. And so it's possible that perhaps this chapter is actually the key to the meaning of the entire narrative we're about to study. So Genesis is teaching us how to read. And this chapter should now have our full attention because it's it's likely that if we don't get this, we're not going to get the rest of what we're going to study in the book of Genesis as it teaches us how to read. So now for something completely different. Let's reflect on the plot of the first 11 verses that we just read. Judah has separated himself from the covenant family. He's acting just like Esau did in chapter 36. It's never a good idea. Things will never go well when you remove yourself from covenant community, when you leave the church. Never goes well. Judah removes himself from the covenant community, starts hanging out with the people of the land around him, the Canaanites, and the Canaanites become his buddies. And Judah takes a Canaanite woman, and he has three kids with her, three sons, And then his first son marries some other woman of unknown origin who's probably likely another Canaanite. But he errs such a wicked man that God kills him. And then consistent with the practice of Leverite marriage, and we're going to come back to that in a second, the second son takes that wife to try to keep the line going. But he's wicked too, and God kills him too. So Judah withholds his third son from that wife and sends her home. That's the basic plot. That's what's going on. Now here are a couple, let's tease out a couple details from the plot of the story. Judah has left the safety. He's left the protection. He's left the fellowship. He's left the accountability of the covenant community that is this covenant family. As messed up as it is, it is still God's people. And he struck out on his own. And his friend group is now composed of people who are outside the covenant, who do not know God, who do not worship Yahweh, and who are not going to help Judah do any of those things either. And this is a story we're familiar with, I think. Our children growing up, and when they leave home, they leave the church. Right? That's happening more and more all the time in modern America. And there might be a number of different presenting reasons for that, but basically I think it boils down to this. It's a lack of discipleship. It's a lack of word-based, relationally driven, imitating, modeling life of discipleship like 1 Thessalonians has taught us this year. We loved you so much. We shared with you the gospel, and we shared with you the lives, both our lives, both of those things together. And now Judah is doing this. He's leaving his family. He's leaving the community, and his life is spiraling downward. And we can see that in the marriages, the follow a major theme in the Abraham and the Isaac and the Jacob narratives that start, in Genesis, start earlier in Genesis 12 and have moved us to this point. A major theme there was a high level of concern with who the person's going to marry. And with good reason, right? The whole book of Genesis is about, it's about the coming seed, the seed line. Because God promised in the middle of sin's curse and death that sin brings, he's going to bring a seed, a son, a savior, an offspring who's going to reverse the curse and crush the serpent and redeem the people and restore garden life. And this book of Genesis is nothing if not the story of the seed. Remember, toledot is its structuring device, that word in Hebrew that's These are the generations of, the generations of, the generations of, so that at every new spot in the book, what we care about is the next generation, and the next generation is the baton is handed off. So Toledot is an apt structuring device, because this book cares about generations going on, so it really matters who you marry. The New Testament has the same level of concern. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And Judah has chosen Poorly. Unlike his fathers, who marry inside the covenant line, inside the seed line, he takes a bride from the Canaanites, or he just gets a baby mama, because you should notice that there's no indication that he actually marries this person yet, nor is she ever called his wife yet in this text when they start having kids. And things just go downhill from there because his sons just do what the father modeled, And as we're raising children, they're going to grow up more like who we are than what we say if those two things are different, right? Children will turn out like what their parents are more than what their parents say, especially if those two things are not the same. And it's true for Judah. His kids turn out like him. And they go take wives from outside the covenant. And things just keep going down. But unlike Judah's wife, who is never named and we never actually meet in the text... His son's wife, it's a funny way to say it, isn't it? A trip on that every time. His son's wife, not his son's wives, because there's just one woman. She does have a name, and it's Tamar. But Tamar appears to be barren, and she can have no children. Her first husband, Ur, God kills for his wickedness. Not unlike the way he dealt with people in Noah's time. But in Noah's time, all the earth was full of evil and violence, and God, in his judgment, killed everybody except one man who found grace. Here, it's a surgical strike. It's not everybody. It's a surgical strike inside the covenant family to deal with evil and wickedness. And he kills Ur. And the second son, who refuses to continue the family line, he kills as well. Because that's what's going on with Leverite marriage. That's what Onan is supposed to be doing. Leverite marriage is found in Deuteronomy 25. If you want to go read about the idea... The point of it is the family line, the line has to continue. We have to keep the line going. So if the firstborn, the oldest son dies, and he has no one to keep the line going, the next brother in line takes his wife and gives him sons, right? The sons belong to the older dead brother, and then the line continues. But this Onan guy doesn't seem to care if the line continues or not. He effectively abuses Tamar. That's what this is. We would call it abuse. He uses her for all of the privileges of a wife, but he refuses to take any of the responsibilities of a husband. So God judges and kills him. Apparently, God thinks this matters. And so Judah, who, apparently, who, who like Onan apparently doesn't really care if his line continues, he sends Tamar away. Because Tamar does kind of look like bad luck at this point, right? She's o for 2 with husbands. Let's not try o for 3. And so she goes home. He sends her away. And where does that leave us in this story of Genesis? It leaves us with a covenant son, one who is of this line of the seed through whom all nations will be blessed, not caring a fig about the covenant that he's in. It looks like, for all intents and purposes, Judah does not actually know God. God. He is not worshiping Yahweh, and he doesn't care to help anybody else do that either. He's checked out and walked away from his relationship with God and the mission that God has given him as part of his covenant people. Judah has become, for all intents and purposes, a Canaanite. And because of that, it appears that this part of the seed line is going to come to an end with Judah. There will be no offspring. There will be no seed. There will be no son. Judah's line will end with him. He is the fourth generation from God's covenant with Abraham. He is the result of God's gracious and miraculous intervention with other barren women. He wouldn't even exist, but God intervened so Sarah could have a child. He wouldn't exist, but God intervened so Rebecca could have a child. Judah wouldn't even exist, but God was already miraculously, graciously intervening in history to keep the covenant seed line going so the seed, the son, the Savior could come. But Judah doesn't care. He's part of a special people who are, through whom all blessing will come. His mission in life is to pass on his faith and the purpose and the line to the next generation, to disciple his children. Is the, if that's the way we would put it. That's what Deuteronomy 6 teaches. To disciple his children, to love the Lord their God with all their heart and life and everything they are, so the line and the mission of the covenant keep going. But Judah won't even do that for himself, much less model or teach that to anyone else. And so he's condemning himself and his family and every future generation from him to life away from God and apart from blessing to live as Canaanites. That's where we're at. Men of grace covenant, boys of grace covenant, the culture has a target on you. We do not live in a country that will encourage you to be men of God. Will you stand for Christ and others to be and make disciples, or will you become a Canaanite like Judah? So I'm off my sermon notes at the moment, so bear with me. It's up to you, men, to be the father, the dad, the single man, who looks like Jesus and points others to him so that the covenant mission and line continue. You can't be an American and a Christian first. Only one of them. So that's where we're at in this text. It's a pretty serious spot, right? And you might want to be asking, you might want to be asking yourself, why does this matter? I mean, who really cares, right? You might be asking yourself that as a father or a dad or a single man. Oh, does it really matter that much if I'm walking with Jesus for for the for the good of others and myself, All right? Because Abraham has, or sorry, Jacob has eleven other sons, right? Why do we need this one? Well, we lose one; we've still got eleven left. Well, actually, ten because they sold one to the Egyptians. So we have we have ten left, right? This is we still have enough. Surely something will go okay. Why do we care about Judah's line? What is it so special about him that suddenly we care whether his line continues? Well, if you want to answer that question, that requires cheating and reading ahead, doesn't it? to know why it is that Judah's line matters so much. If we read ahead a little bit, but not too much, because that would, be, you know, that would be extravagant if we kept reading ahead. But if we read ahead just a few more pages, we're going to find another instance where another woman from outside the covenant has to participate in a Levite marriage to keep the marriage, to keep the line going. Right? For some reason, we care about Elimelech's line. This guy who also was disobedient takes his family to live in the lands of Moab, and there his, he meets this, his family meets this woman named Ruth, who's a Moabite, and she comes back, and she participates in a, Moab, in a Levite marriage with Boaz, who's a whole, ni- a whole lot better of a guy than Judah is, by the way. Boaz is a godly man, and so for some reason we care about that line continuing, and we don't get the answer to that, right? You have to read to the very end of the book of Ruth to get the, oh, I see why we care if Ruth Ruth and Boaz get together and there's a, there's a line or a son coming from them. So it could be that this story here has doing the same thing. And You have to keep reading to find out why it is we care if Judah actually has a son and his line continues. But that's reading ahead, right? We don't do that very much, so we're going to stick to our text. Judah's line is coming to an end because of his selfishness and his sin. So here's what happened next, verse twelve. We're going to read a huge chunk here, so stick with me. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, and he and his friend Ira, the Edomites. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. He turned aside to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adelamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute? Who is it I am at I on the roadside? And they said, hmm, <laughs> I love this line, no, cults, no cult prostitutes been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, oh, just let her keep the things as her own, and we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you couldn't find her. Here we read Judah's callousness and immorality, equally matched by Tamar's cunning. The hits just keep on coming in the covenant family, don't they? Judah's wife dies. Now she's his wife. She doesn't even get a name ever. And he's so broken up about it, he goes off to shear his sheep. Seems to have really affected him deeply. And then as he's going down, he sees a prostitute and immediately decides that would be a good idea to stop and dally with her. And then to reinforce our opinion of his good judgment, he decides to leave her effectively with his driver's license because he doesn't have cash payment. That's pretty much what he does. So here, just take my driver's license. I'll come get it back with some cash from the ATM in a little while. But this isn't a prostitute. And garments and clothes matter in our story again, don't they? This is a sub-theme that's going to run through the whole thing. Who's wearing what, when, matters. Last chapter, Joseph's robe stirred up jealousy and hatred and was part of the catalyst that ended up him being almost murdered and sold into slavery. And as that robe was removed from him, his life dramatically changed. And it was used as evidence to convince Jacob that he was dead. Here, clothes matter again. She trades one set of clothing of a widow for the clothing of a prostitute, assumes another identity, fools Judah, and then switches back to become a widow again. You're going to see clothing matter next week in Genesis 39 too, of who's wearing what and when will come up again, as clothing is kind of altering the course of the covenant family. So Tamar appears in this narrative to be very closely keeping track of what's going on in Judah's household. And when she sees that Judah doesn't care if his line's going to continue, she comes up with a plan to keep his line going in spite of his neglect and manipulating what she knows of his immorality and carnality. Judah appears to have met his match in cunning, right? Seems to me so. If Judah's not going to continue his own line through his own sons, Tamar will continue his line through her. That might remind us of an earlier episode in Genesis, and one that is not very savory. Remember Genesis 19, where Lot's line, Abraham's nephew, continues through his daughters? And that's where the Moabites and the Ammonites come from, and they're a problem for a long time. So we kind of look at this and go, "Ah, ah, ah," because of what we've seen before. The more we read, the more Judah's part of the covenant line appears to be acting, like the cursed part of the covenant line. They're not acting. They're not living up to the covenant of which they are part. But it wouldn't hurt us to notice Tamar's risks in her plan, and see if that doesn't also remind you of another story we've already alluded to later in the Bible, the story of Ruth. Tamar's actions are aimed at keeping the covenant family line going by finding a way to offer herself to the next man in that line so there's a son. But keep in mind the risks she's taking. Similar to Ruth's risks, in Ruth 3, if she's caught playing the prostitute, that is a capital crime and she will be killed. If the wrong guy comes down the road first, that's probably not going to go well. She could become pregnant by the wrong person, right? Or think about where she's at. This is the area of Shechem, Genesis 34. She could just be assaulted and attacked by someone else because they seem to do that in this area of the promised land. Or Judah might actually recognize her. And then we're back to the first scenario of capital punishment for being a prostitute. Right? Or he just ignores her, which seems unlikely and doesn't happen, and just goes on about shearing his sheep. There's a lot that can go wrong, and she's risking her life to make this happen. Her plan succeeds as far as it's up to her, and then she disappears and trades her garments and becomes the widow again. But she keeps the driver's license. Cause she might need that later. Verse 27. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. You can breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, Judah's line will not end with Judah. In spite of his carelessness and his carnality, This part of the covenant line will continue. And in spite of his hypocrisy, bring her out and burn her. Really? In spite of his hypocrisy, the retention of his driver's license saves her skin and saves her twins. Tamar, it turns out, is more righteous than Judah. Though that may not be the most advantageous comparison ever made. Judah says that she is anyway, and we notice the narrator does not argue with her or correct him. And against all odds and in spite of themselves, we're going to see generations coming from Judah in spite of him. So this strange, sordid tale stuck into the middle of the Joseph narrative right as it gets going. This is our now-for-something-completely-different moment in this last Toledote of Genesis. Joseph has had two dreams, that his family is gonna come bow to him, and then his brothers act to keep those dreams from ever happening by selling him as a slave to Egypt, right, problem solved. That guy's gone, no more worries. And then we read this screwed up story, and then next week we're going to go back, the camera's gonna go back to Joseph in Egypt, and it's gonna stay on him the rest of the time, and we're not gonna come back to Judah's family again. So what's going on here? by sticking this story in the middle of the other one like a giant marken sandwich. I think what's happening here is Genesis 38 intends to teach us the point of and the theology of the larger story around it. Does God send those dreams and sovereignly orchestrate the brothers sending Joseph to Egypt for the same reason he sovereignly works to include Tamar going to Judah so that the line continues? Is God working in these people's lives and in spite of their sin? Is the point then of the entire Joseph narrative the preservation of Judah's line? That's what we're supposed to be wondering. Is the real point here of Joseph going to Egypt in the first place so that Judah's line doesn't die? In spite of all of the ungodliness and the wickedness and the plans and the schemes that are going on inside this family, God is determined to redeem them from their sin. God has decided his seed of Eve, son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, is going to come. And God's going to make history come out exactly as he's decided that it should so that his people even though they do their best in their ignorance and immorality to mess it up so that his people will be saved. Whether he has to use brothers who are sinning against each other or a father and a daughter-in-law who are sinning against each other, it looks like perhaps the purpose of Joseph's life is to preserve Judah's line. Even to the point of Joseph's story being one of sacrifice and suffering, to save others. And that should start to sound like another story that you hear later. Psalms 103, God's people, 104, 105, 106, continue to mess this up, Psalms 103, but God is always faithful to them. Maybe, maybe that's the story of the Joseph narrative, but since we haven't finished it yet, I guess we'll just have to keep reading to find out, because we're not sure. We'll have to move on to 39 next week. But I also want us to understand what this story is not teaching. This story is not teaching a utilitarian God who just uses people to get what he wants. The story is not teaching a teleological God whose end justifies the means. This story is teaching a sovereignly redemptive God who at the same time orchestrates and arrange and intervenes to make his plan effective and to sanctify and save the people who are involved in it. And he's doing both simultaneously. His sovereignly redemptive so that his people will be saved from themselves and their own sin and his people can participate in him saving all of the nations, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who will come to him through the coming seed, Son, Savior. His plan is both ultimate redemption and ongoing sanctification so that his people who badly need to be saved can be sanctified to the point where they can participate with him and what he's doing. To see this again, based on our text in Genesis 38, we can peek and we'll read ahead one more time because we're allowed to do that because Tamar comes up again. Later in Scripture, one more time, the passage we're studying here, this is the last toledot in Genesis, right? It's the end of the book. There are no more Toledotes after this. But it's not the last toledot in the Bible. Remember, we mentioned last week there's one more book who takes the Hebrew word, puts it in Greek, and then uses this same phrase again as though it's picking up and finishing the story Genesis starts. And it's the very first line of the New Testament where Matthew writes, this is the Toledote, this is the Genesis, this is the generations of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, son of Abraham. That's the final Toledote that finishes this story. That's how the Gospel of Matthew starts. So we understand the coming seed we've been waiting for. All this time he's finally come and his name is Jesus. And then Matthew does just what Genesis does and gives us a genealogy to trace his line. And in that genealogy there are four Gentiles and they are women and their names are Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and Solomon's mother. The nations are already included in the line of Christ before he even comes. That's not a new idea in the New Testament. It's been part of the plan from the very beginning. The nations are also in the coming seed, Savior, Son. Watch how Matthew bookends this. begins with, the nations included in the line of the Messiah before he comes. And what's the last part of Matthew? Say where Jesus gives his command to his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I am with you always until you're done doing this, until the end of the age. Matthew's bookending the inclusion of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation as part of Abraham's offspring who will redeem one people to one future through the work of one coming seed savior son to be with him, worshiping him and glorifying him and enjoying him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Entirely, entirely the work of God for his glory that we get to benefit from And participate in. And this has been part of the plan from in the beginning God created. That's the purpose of this story. That's the purpose of our text. The preservation of the line of Judah. The inclusion of the nations and the people of God. And Matthew is telling us the same thing. That's the church's purpose. Passing on the, the faith to the next generation by being and making disciples and then going so that others might come and become included in the people of God as well. So I'm going to end fairly quickly. Sometimes I like to tease out some thoughts from this chapter. I'm just going to give you this one. And then we'll just hit a full stop. Maybe Genesis 38 is here to make us stop and look in the mirror and take stock of ourselves as we watch Judah's ignorance and selfishness and immorality. What am I giving my life to? What are we doing as a church? Do we understand God's plan that we are to be and to make disciples? And are we giving our lives to participating in that covenant of grace? What are you doing? What are you doing? Let's respond to the grace of God by following Jesus and helping other people do that too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God. Our memory verse today said, And God blessed them. And then it gave five commands as your blessing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule it and subdue it. And this is our still our blessing. The great creation commandment and the great commission commandment are the same. To fill the earth with the glory of God by the proclamation of the message of the coming seed, Savior, Son, that we and others around us might have faith in him. I pray that if some of us are here this morning having not trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that this would be their day to do so. I pray that for those of us who already have, that this would be a good hard look in the mirror to ask ourselves, is our passion in life continuing the line of faith? of the Son, the Seed, the Savior, whose name we now know as Jesus. Thanks for your text. Thanks for the way you tell stories. Thank you that you've preserved it for us, and you allow us to hear it and heed it today. We know we can't do this on our own, nor do we expect to. We simply ask for the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit to give us the will and the strength to do what you've called us to. Thank you. We love you because you first loved us. In Christ's name, amen.